Hey, as uh, many of you know, my wife Rebecca and I recently got a new alarm clock. Uh, yeah, Calvin James Proctor. Yeah, he's uh, 15 days old now, which means that Rebecca and I haven't slept in 15 days. <laughs> now, but mom and baby are doing well, and we're so grateful to God for his kindness to us and to many of you, because you have loved us and encouraged us and prayed for us through the process, and it has been great. Um, there's a book by Dr. Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And in this book, Dr. Chapman argues that there's five major ways that most of us give or receive love. And for those of you who have not read the book, I wanna catch you up. I'll fill you in on what the five love languages are. And there's one guy who illustrates the five love languages with his love of tacos. So that's how we're gonna do it tonight, okay? Here is love language number one is words of affirmation. In other words, your tacos are delicious. Uh, love language number two is acts of service. In other words, hey, I made you tacos. Love language number three is gifts. In other words, hey, here's a taco. Love language number four is quality time. In other words, hey, let's go out for tacos together. And love language number five is physical touch. Let me hold you like a taco. <laughs> so we're gonna go through those five this evening and I wanna see what your primary way that you like to receive love is, just by a show of hands, okay? Uh, raise your hand if you are a words of affirmation person. That's your favorite way to receive love. Okay, very good, I love you. How was that? Is that okay? All right. Um, let's go number two. Uh, raise your hand if you're acts of service. You like it when people serve you, do nice things for you. Okay, probably the baby of the family, aren't you? Yep. Uh, okay, uh, what about gifts? Raise your hand if you like to receive gifts when people buy you nice things. Very good, there's our selfish people. All right, okay. All right, raise your hand if you are, let's see, what are the others here? Let's look. Uh, oh, quality time. Raise your hand if you're a quality time person. You like to spend time together. Okay, you don't mind if I preach a little long tonight then, right? Okay. And physical touch. How many of you like physical touch? Okay, you're one of those people. All right, very good. I heard Corbin's giving out free hugs after church tonight, by the way, so go find him. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, my love languages in order are words of affirmation, physical touch, and then quality time gifts and acts of service. In other words, tell me you love me, give me a hug, and then get out of my way and don't take up my time. <laughs> my wife, Rebecca, however, she is a quality time person through and through. That is 100% her favorite way to receive love. And she has said to me, actually multiple times, she said, you know, I would love it if we were like Siamese twins and we were like attached at the hips, we could do literally everything together every second of the day. And the funny thing is, she's not kidding. She's dead serious. <laughs> And that is a totally foreign concept to me. But my wife, Rebecca, she just loves being together. And the more I thought about it, the more I think that God is a quality time person. I mean, yeah, sure, God likes acts of service when we do good works, and he likes gifts when we offer him our best, and he likes words of affirmation when we sing praise songs to him. But God also really just loves being together. Here's what I want you to know this evening. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you, that simple. In fact, here's what I wanna do tonight. I just wanna kinda tell you the whole story of God from the very beginning using these two chairs. This is an illustration. I stole it from another preacher. He said I could steal it, so it's okay. It was helpful for me. I hope it'll be helpful for you as well. So in the beginning, there was God. Just God, nothing else. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly self-sufficient. And yet God 
desired to have a relationship with someone outside of himself. He didn't need us, but he wanted us. He wanted to know us. He wanted us to know him. He wanted us to be with him. And so God created the world. And in the world, God created a perfect garden called Eden. And then in the garden, he created this man and this woman, the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they had a great life. I mean, let me tell you, they had it better than anybody. Think about it. Eve never had to wonder what to fix for dinner. They just go pluck the most amazing fruit imaginable off of these luscious plants all around them. Eve never had to worry about doing the laundry. Isn't that great? Eve never had to wonder if she married the right guy. <laughs> she married the only guy there was. And Adam, man, he had it pretty good as a husband too. He never had to hear his wife say, honey, what should I wear today? <laughs> I mean, can I get an amen? They had a great life. And you know what the best part of all was? The best part of all was that God walked in the garden. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world. They got to walk with God. They got to talk with God. They got to know God. They were together and all was well because they were together just like God wanted. But then Adam and Eve did this. God gave them one rule, just one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Any other tree, you can eat from that, but just don't eat from that one. So what did they do? <laughs> they ate from it. They sinned, they rebelled, they disobeyed. They willfully ruptured their relationship with God. And so they could not be together with God anymore. They were separated. A sinful person cannot live in the presence of a holy God. In fact, there is no stage big enough for me to show you just how far their sin, our sin, has driven us from God. We can't be together anymore. And the worst part about it is they can't close this gap. Adam and Eve can do nothing to work their way back towards God. They can't fix this problem. They're stuck. But the amazing thing is that God is a quality time person. And God even still, wants to be together. And so God, in his mercy, works his way toward us. It's the story of the Old Testament. God appears over and over again, trying to draw near to these people. God appears to this guy named Noah, and he says, hey, the whole world is evil, but I wanna get close to you. You follow me, and so I'm gonna kill the whole world with a flood, but I'm gonna rescue you. And then God appears to this guy named Abraham and he says, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a family and I'm gonna make your family into a great nation and I'm gonna use that nation to bless the whole world. And then God appears to Abraham's son named Isaac and then he appears to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob has these 12 sons and these 12 sons, they go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. This family is becoming a nation just like God promised. But one thing leads to another, and this nation eventually finds themselves in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. But, but God doesn't give up. No, God appears again. He comes. He draws near to the people again. This time, he appears in a burning bush to this guy named Moses. And he says, hey, Moses, I'm going to use you to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt so that I can be together with them again. And Moses says, me? <laughs> No way. And God says, 
Yahweh. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. That was pitiful, please. <laughs> and amazingly, God does it. That's what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. God does it. He brings these 10 plagues on the people of Egypt and he parts the Red Sea and he leads them in a pillar of cloud and fire and he brings bread from heaven to provide for the people. And then at the climax of the book of Exodus, here we are, God brings the people to Mount Sinai. God has these people at a mountain and God himself descends to the mountain. This fiery storm cloud of God's glory and his presence descends on the mountain. Moses and some of the leaders of the people, they go up and they get to meet with God himself. Finally, at last, it looks like God's people and God are together again. And yet, there's a problem because there's still this gap. Not everybody can go up on the mountain. And actually, there's this lingering question because the question is, well, how can the people still live in God's presence even when they leave the mountain? How can they keep the fire of Sinai burning within them even after they get back on the road? And so God's answer for how his people can be together with him is this, Exodus chapter 25, verses eight and nine. God says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God says, hey, in order for us to be together, in order for my presence to be with you, I need a holy place. A holy God needs a holy space. And holy space, it's basically just what the word sanctuary means. So God says, build me a sanctuary, build me a tabernacle. The Hebrew word is mishkan. Say that, say mishkan. Oh yeah, you're getting your money's worth tonight. You can walk out, tell all your friends, you're gonna be super impressed with how smart you are. Mishkan. It's the Hebrew word for tabernacle and it just means a dwelling place. And so God says, hey, I need you to build a mishkan, a tabernacle where we can be together again, this holy space. And so while he's up on the mountain, God gives Moses these instructions on how to build this mishkan, this tabernacle. We're gonna play a video here in the background as I'm talking that's gonna just show you kind of a 3D representation of what this tabernacle would have looked like. And the amazing thing is that in this account, God does not say, hey Moses, build me this tent and then I'm gonna live in the tent. No. God says, hey, 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 build this tabernacle and I will live among you. It's like where the tabernacle goes, all of a sudden God's presence is there. It's like heaven meets earth. And this gap gets a little bit closer. It's like their portable Sinai, their mobile encounter with the almighty God. It's pretty amazing, actually, that in, in Exodus, they give us 13 chapters on the building of this tabernacle, this tent, which is pretty remarkable. It takes up a quarter of the book of Exodus just describing how the tent was built. Pretty amazing, considering that God only took two chapters to tell us how he made the whole universe. <laughs> This must be pretty important. So let's dive in. First thing you'll notice here as you look at the tabernacles that it's surrounded by this cloth wall and inside the cloth wall, there's a courtyard. Exodus chapter 27, verse 18 says this. It says, God says, the courtyard shall be 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide with curtains of finely twisted linen, five cubits high and with bronze bases. A cubit is like a measuring unit for them. It was the tip of a man's elbow to the top tip of his middle finger. It's roughly 18 inches most of the time. Let's be honest on me, it's probably like 14 inches. But this means that roughly the courtyard would have been 150 feet by 75 feet. 
And when you walk into the courtyard of the tabernacle, you'll notice there that the first thing you see is this giant bronze altar for burnt offerings. And every day, morning and evening, the priests would offer sacrifices on this altar. And so the people in the camp, they would see the smoke rising. They would smell the flesh burning as this tangible reminder of the price of their sin, the separation that it caused. The second piece of furniture that you see there in the courtyard is this wash basin. A laver is the the big word for it. But this bronze wash basin, the priests would wash in this before they went about their priestly duties because they were about to do holy work in the presence of a holy God. And so they needed to be clean, both physically and spiritually. And then inside the tent itself, you'll notice that the first room there inside the tabernacle is called the holy place. And most Israelites never saw the holy place. Only only priests could go in there. And the whole room was covered with gold. And inside the holy place, there were three articles of furniture. The first one you'll see is called the table of showbread. The table of showbread, or the bread of the presence, as it was called. There were 12 loaves of bread there on this table, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a reminder of, you might remember a couple weeks ago, Steve talked about how some of the leaders from the tribes, they went up on the mountain and they ate with God. So this table is a reminder that God's people are living in God's presence. It was actually common in ancient days in pagan temples for people to bring some food in and leave the food there for the gods to eat. But here, this bread isn't for God to eat. Actually, the priests would eat this bread every Sabbath. In other words, it was a reminder that, hey, we're not feeding God. God's feeding us. The next article of furniture there in the holy place is a lampstand. It's called a menorah. You've probably seen one. It says big golden candelabra. Actually, that giant thing was made out of one solid piece of gold. It's some remarkable craftsmanship. It was symbolic of the light of God's presence. And actually, on it, there were hammered some, some blossoms and some buds, which is supposed to remind us of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And God's presence when he appeared to Moses on the burning bush. Kind of looks like a burning bush if you look at it. The third article of furniture in the holy place was the altar of incense. And again, every morning and every evening, the priest would burn some incense on that altar. And the smoke, the smell would rise up to heaven as kind of symbolic of the prayers of the people in God's presence. And the smell of that incense would stick on the priest as he went throughout his day as a constant reminder of the prayers of the people that he was living in God's presence. And then behind the altar of incense, you'll notice there's that thick black line. That thick black line dividing the two rooms, that's a, that's a veil. And that thick veil hung there to protect people from accidentally seeing the inner room, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence dwelt most fully. These dimensions on this uh, visual are a little bit off, but the Holy of Holies, it was a small room, and it was actually a perfect cube, about 15 feet on every side. And in the Holy of Holies, there was only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box, about four feet long, two feet wide, high, er, wide and deep, and uh, it was covered with gold inside and out. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two stone tablets on which God carved the Ten Commandments. Then you'll notice there's a lid on the Ark of the Covenant. That lid is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, that lid, was also made out of a solid block of gold. And on the mercy seat, you'll see two cherubim there bowing down, wings outstretched. 
And scripture actually tells us that, that that place right there in between the two chairmen, below the wings, that, scripture says, is the footstool of God's heavenly throne. That is the place on earth where God's presence dwelt most intensely. God's presence was so intense, in fact, that almost nobody ever went into the Holy of Holies. Only the, pre, the high priest could go in. And he only went in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go through extensive rituals to prepare him, these preparation rites, and then he would go carefully into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle some blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. God would give the people his mercy. And that was how they could be together. That was how this tabernacle was kept as a a clean place, a holy space, a mishkan, where God and his people could be together again. Don't you see what he's doing? He's bringing us back to the garden. In fact, in these these chapters in Exodus where God is giving Moses instructions to build the tabernacle, the instructions are kind of split up into seven sections. We can tell because there's some very distinct transitions between the sections. See if you catch on. Uh, Exodus chapter 25 verse one says, then the Lord said to Moses. Exodus chapter 30 verse 17 says, then the Lord said to Moses. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22 says, then the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 30, 34, then the Lord said to Moses. Are you sensing a theme here? Exodus 31, 1, then the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 31, 12, then the Lord said to Moses. Seven times God speaks to Moses. Does that remind you of another time when God speaks seven times and something was created? Oh, yeah. Back in the very beginning, God speaks, and over the course of seven days, he creates the world and the Garden of Eden and mankind itself. And actually, in both places, on the sixth instance, God is filling mankind with his spirit. And on the seventh instance, God is instructing his creation to follow the Sabbath. Don't you see what he's doing? He's he's bringing us back to the garden. God is creating this mishkan, this tabernacle, this dwelling space where he can be together again with his people at last. And so Moses and the people, they build the tabernacle and the fire of God's presence comes and it fills the mishkan. God is here. It looks like finally at last God and his people are together again. And yet, Not just anybody can go into the Holy of Holies. And in fact, while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days getting the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, the people who are down below at the base of the mountain do some dumb stuff to push God away. We'll learn more about that next week. Seems like every time God tries to draw near us, we just push him away. A few hundred years later, the tabernacle fades away and the people decide that they want to build a permanent place for God's presence, a temple. And so they do. And again, God's presence fills the Mishkan. His fire comes down, fills the Mishkan. And it looks like God and his people are finally together again in the temple. But there's still that veil between the people and the Holy of Holies. And actually, God's people end up kind of abandoning him. And then the temple is destroyed. And then the people are sent into exile. But God doesn't give up. Eventually he brings the people back and the temple is rebuilt. 
But then the people abandoned him again. And so we come to the end of our Old Testament here, and this, this blank page in the middle of your Bibles, this little blank page right between the Old Testament and the New, that's 400 years of silence. The prophets are gone, the miracles stop, and everybody's wondering, is God ever gonna be able to be with his people again? Where is he? How's he gonna fix this problem? Is he even here? And hallelujah, then we turn the page. to Matthew chapter one, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is on the scene. God himself makes the move that we couldn't move and he comes down to be with us. God with us. Us in Jesus. And John chapter one, verse 14 says it like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Does that sound familiar? Made his dwelling among us. Jesus came and it says, the, 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 the word actually is Jesus came and he tabernacled with us. That's the verb there. God himself comes to be with us. God comes and he makes his mishkan, his space side by side with us. And so in the Gospels, everywhere Jesus goes, God goes. God's on the scene. Jesus is like this living, breathing, walking tabernacle. In fact, Jesus fulfills every part of the tabernacle. Anything that the Jews hoped to find in the tabernacle, we find in Jesus. Think about it. Through Jesus, we hear God's voice, and we enter into God's presence, and we pray. We have the bread of life. We have the light of the world. We are washed Jesus is our perfect sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our great high priest. And so, yeah, it would have been awesome to be in the Garden of Eden. And it would have been awesome to be at the tabernacle. But think of how amazing it would have been to be with Jesus. I mean, to sit in the boat and to see him walk on the water and then calm the storm. To hear him tell the stories of God's kingdom. To see him open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead to life. To walk the Galilean countryside with the son of God himself. Sign me up, count me in. That would be amazing. And yet, if I was there, I probably would have done the same thing that the people who were there did. We had God with us. God himself was walking among his people again. And what did we do? We killed him. But the amazing thing is that, that when, they, when, when we killed Jesus, that curtain, that veil in the temple, it was torn in two. And the holy of holies was exposed and all of a sudden heaven was unleashed on earth. And the best part of the story is, I hope you know this, that Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again to new life. And before he ascended back up to heaven, he said this, he said this, this is amazing. He said, I will be with you always. 
And then just a few days later, uh, some of the followers of Jesus, Acts chapter two, they're gathered together and they're praying. And yet again, the fire of God's presence comes down and it fills the Mishkan. Except this time, the Mishkan isn't a tent or a temple. It's the people themselves. God's presence comes and indwells his people. And so all of a sudden, God's not just living among them. He's living in them. And so we have the Holy Spirit living in us. In other words, look, 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 this is us. God is here. He's here. The Bible says that heaven someday is gonna be the perfect mishkan. The place where God's presence and God's people are finally fully together again. Revelation chapter 21, verse three says it like this. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place. That sound familiar? God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In fact, Revelation says that heaven itself is a perfect cube. The whole place is the holy of holies, filled with God's presence. That's gonna be a great day. But the awesome thing is that we don't actually have to wait till then to enter into the holy of holies. We can do it right now, scripture says. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Whoa, 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 what? Confidence. Nobody had confidence to enter the most holy place. Even the high priest himself had to dot all his T's and cross all his I's, and I I messed that up, okay? He had to dot all his I's, cross all his T's. He had to get all his ducks in a row to make sure he could then carefully, reverently, fearfully enter the Holy of Holies, and he only once a year. Oh, but, but we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus, it says. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. That's amazing. With a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, through Jesus, we can live in God's presence. But actually, the Apostle Paul, he takes it one step further. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In other words, we don't have to go to a church building to meet with God. We call that room over there the sanctuary, but we are the sanctuary. We are the mishkan. God is here. I heard a story about a, little boy in the lunch line at school and at one point in the line there was a basket of apples and one of the lunch ladies had written a note by it and said, take only one apple, God is watching. <laughs> a little further down there was a basket of cookies and some little boy had scribbled a note real quick on a napkin and put it there and said, take as many as you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> and we laugh because we know that's not true, right? There's nothing that God doesn't see. The big church word we use is God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. There is nowhere that God is not. And yet there's a slight difference in saying God is everywhere and God is here. Because when we say that God is here, 
it's a little more specific, a little more active. Because if God really is here, then that demands a response from us. Because we're supposed to be the dwelling place. We're supposed to be the mishkan where God's presence can live. And yet all too often, there's not much space in our lives for God to dwell. So how do we give God the mishkan, the space that he deserves? The answer is quite simple. Practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. There was a monk in the 17th century by the name of Brother Lawrence. And in the monastery where Brother Lawrence lived, he was stuck on kitchen duty. Uh, It was his job to prepare all the meals for the other monks in the monastery and to clean up after them. I don't know about you, but I personally think that washing dishes is the most boring task on the face of the planet. But Brother Lawrence saw his kitchen chores as an opportunity to engage with God's presence. And so he did. He turned his work into a conversation with God. He lived as if there were nobody but Brother Lawrence and God in the world. So God and Brother Lawrence would run errands together and cook dinner together and they'd scrub pots together. He called it Practicing the Presence of God. He wrote this great little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. You should read it. Quick read. And in that book, Brother Lawrence says this. He says, the most holy practice, the nearest to daily life, And the most essential for the spiritual life is the practice of the presence of God. That is, to find joy in his divine company and to make it a habit of life, speaking humbly and conversing lovingly with him at all times, in every moment, without rule or restriction, above all at times of temptation, distress, dryness and revulsion, and even of faithlessness and sin. So give God... A mishkan, space in your life for you and him to be together. Practice the presence of God. It's been a discipline that's been really uh, helpful and fruitful. I've found a lot of joy in it over the years, partially because it's so simple. There's a thousand ways to do it. But at the core of it, it's this. As you go throughout your day, just find ways to remind yourself that God is with you, that you are with God, that God is here. And then whatever you're doing, do it with him. A few years ago, I, I bought a wristwatch with the goal of trying to think of Jesus every 15 minutes. That was my goal. Because you know when you, you have something new, you like feel it all the time. And so every time I felt this watch on my wrist and every time it was uncomfortable, that was my reminder to think of Jesus. It worked really well as a reminder for a little while. And then I get used to the watch and it doesn't really work as a reminder anymore. And so this week, I was trying to think of something to remind myself of God's presence as I went throughout my day. So you can laugh if you want to, uh, but, but this week, every time I've changed a diaper, <laughs> that's, that's been my reminder that God is here. And now we have two little boys under the age of two, so like 20 times a day, it's like I'm reminded, okay, God, you're here again. <laughs> and, and man, even when the baby's crying and the diaper is messy and ripe. Y'all remember what newborn diapers are like, right? That, I mean, you could pave your driveway with that stuff. It's gross. <laughs> but, but even then, we've had some really sweet and worshipful moments with God right there at the changing table. Doesn't have to be complicated. Just practice the presence of God. Uh, you could bring an empty chair into the room to remind yourself that he's with you in the room. You could set reminders on your phone. You could go for a prayer walk. You could uh, listen to worship music as you work. You could put up some kind of a physical reminder, a sign or a rock or a cross or a three-by-five card with a Bible verse on it in your pocket. I don't care what you do, but whatever you do, remind yourself that God is here. And then do your life with him. 
practice the presence of God because we are the Mishkan. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And when you give him the space, he will fill it with his presence because God is here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being here right now. And these people in this place with us, in us, thank you so much for your patience with us when we get distracted and we don't even realize that you are here. We don't really even try to pay much attention sometimes to what you're doing. So forgive us for that. Forgive me for that, Lord. Thank you so much for not giving up on us, for continually pursuing us. Thank you for sending us your son, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for sending us yourself, your spirit to live within us. And so, Father, we, we know uh, that you're not hard to find and that more of you is readily available if we just seek it. And so today, I ask that you'd show us each how to build more space into our lives for you because we want more of you. It's in your son Jesus' powerful name that we can approach you tonight in the Holy of Holies. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.